0: You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's wwwm So, welcome everybody. It is July second, twenty twenty, at seven thirty-five PM Pacific Daylight Time. And this is meditation and attachment, and this is the intermediate or advanced class, deepening of practice. How's everybody doing? Okay. And they announced um, who uh, the World Health Organized Organization this morning announced that it, that um, it's going to be four or five years of this <laughs> this morning. <laughs> so. I thought you might have some reaction to that. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're having in some ways to uh, reorganize the way that we, we, we participate in the world so that we can continue our exploration and at the same time be safe. Um, anybody wanna comment on that or should I just launch into the Sattipatthana? All right. Um, I've been I'm w- wanting to talk about uh, Satipatthana. Um, there is a, a kind of um, dialogue in our, our community, particularly in the Theravada community, about whether to go with the progress of insight or whether to go with the Satipatthana. These are the two major Dharma maps that we have uh, that we use. The, the Satipatthana, which is a canonical uh, um, text, and the uh, progress of insight uh, is from the Vasudhimagga, which is a commentary on the canon. And it was written about 700 years afterwards. If you're interested in the progress of insight, I'm doing uh, a series of day-longs. This month, the third Saturday, I'll do a day-long on the first five stages of the uh, progress of insight. Last uh, week I was talking about the the the, the way that the Satipatthana is organized and what it means. Satipatthana is a Pali word that is uh, um, um, often translated as path, but I think that pasture is probably a good one too, the four pastures uh, of contemplation or uh, often you'll hear the list as the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Um, many of you who uh, uh, participated in some way against this stream are, would be familiar with this because they taught the Four Foundations, they taught the Eightfold Path, uh, the Seven Factors of um, Enlightenment. Um, because the original texts were transmitted orally, uh, everything was uh, uh, written as a list, so that it was easy to remember and put into the proper order. Um, as all of these things uh, became written down and, uh, and structured, uh, it became a uh, an implica- implication that the these lists are very linear and that you move through them in a linear way but I notice in practice that they're not so linear and and one or more of these things can be happening at the same time you could skip over something. So um, I tend to use it as a guide. Um, If you think about it as a map, uh, maybe um, some of you remember paper maps where you would unfold them and it would be this giant sheet of paper and you'd sort of have a sense of the, the size of it. And or, you know, you can hit the minus button on a computer screen and it'll zoom out and uh, you'll get more of a sense of, of where you're at. Um, <clears throat> but the map is not the journey. Um, when I was uh, a kid and 18 years old and hitchhiking around Europe, uh, um, in every small town in the south of France, there was an arrow that pointed toward Paris. Uh, and one of the early tips that I got from a Frenchman was, you cannot follow those signs and get to Paris. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've been to uh, uh, France, but all of the roadsides appear in three different sizes, which means they're linked to different highway systems. And if you can't read the difference between the three sizes of the signs and the colors of the letter... You can just go in circles as as you move from one highway system to another never actually getting anywhere so the reason that i like uh, dharma maps is because you can also have that happen in your practice if you're not really in a dialogue with a teacher who can direct you and and you're you're not um organized in the way that you practice you can bounce from inside to inside to insight, and not really make too much progress uh, in terms of what we would call classical enlightenment. How do you discover what insights are important to focus on and what insights are not important to focus on? And uh, because when you do the practice, of course, insights just keep arising. Uh, And so the idea is then to to try and organize it in such a way. And so uh, the Bhutan is one such organization and uh, the progress of insight is another. the reason that the progress of insight map resonated so well with me is because that was uh, it described the journey that my meditation practice took before I found somebody to explain to me how to practice it and what to, to look for and so that one resonated right away. Um, but let me um, again read this uh, which I'm going to do over and over again as we go through the class. Thus I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country, Kuru country at a town of the Kuru's named Kama Sadama, where he addressed the monks thus, Monks, venerable sir, they replied, the Blessed One said this, Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent for acquiring the true method for the realization of the nirvana, namely the four Satipatthana suttas. So in this uh, sutta, he's describing what follows as the direct path to realization. When I first uh, started practicing Shinzen, he said that if enlightenment is your goal, you should try and drop directly down into uh, the experiences that lead to that because at any point you can get sidetracked by something that's interesting and then go in a long way parallel to what the actual path is. And so this is a description of that direct path. Namely, the four satipatthanas. Nibbana is another word for enlightenment. Nirvana is often the way that's translated. Um, One of the things that you may notice as you begin to practice and your practice matures is that the the level of suffering that you experience in the ordinary untrained mind drops off substantially. Uh, Actually, um, when I began to have those experiences, it was mind-blowing to me how I endured the ordinary suffering because it was at such an intense level for so long without even recognizing that the level level of suffering was so intense, Uh, and that you almost need to have a contrast between the mind that doesn't suffer and the suffering mind in order to recognize how the ordinary way of being in the world uh, creates such suffering. In some sense, what we're talking about is that we have the capacity to sense uh, the object that can be sensed, and when they meet a consciousness arises of that sensing experience, but it's unfixated and undefined. And then it's evaluated for processing speed. Uh, Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is the typical translation from the Pali. The Pali word is vedna. Nama rupa is the Pali for the sensing experience itself. It's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's enough of a match, in the perceptual database It attaches to the unfixated sensing experience and we project outward our interpretation of the sensing experience. So you might say that enlightenment is recognizing that that thing that we project out there that looks solid and real is actually coming from inside of us and being projected out. But it isn't there in the sense that we might believe it's there because we're perceiving it's there. It's our version of what's there based on our interpretation of the sensing experience. And that when we believe that the the representation out there is actually out there and accurate, that is the underlying source of so much of our suffering rather than being in a place of uh, uh, curiosity about how we've made it from the data that we got uh, to make it. And we need to have a direct experience of that so in the beginning of practice of course you listen to teachers like myself describe this and take it in and if you take it in as it's intended which is what we mean by faith in buddhism is that i'm describing something that i experience in a, in a way that i'm hoping will be communicative to you so that you'll know what to explore so that you can have the direct experience of it. I'm not telling you to believe my version. I am trying to provide a way for you to explore in such a way that you have a direct experience of what that process is so that you can know it directly. So the four satipatthanas, what are the four Here, monks in regard to the body? A monk abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feelings he abides contemplating feelings, diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the mind he abides contemplating the mind, diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to dhammas he abides contemplating dhammas, Diligently, clearly known, mindful, free from the desires and discontent in the world. And so, last time when we were talking about this, um, contemplation is this this meditation. Vipassana uh, means v, uh, which means to uh, divide. Some people translate it as to look back, and then pasana means to see. So to see, uh, one way to translate it is is that you take the sensing experience and you divide it into the individual sense groups and then you examine it as a way of seeing how the elements come together to form this complex experience of the world. Or you might look at it as the warp of uh, a tapestry and then the, the experience of, of uh, the present moment is woven into it to create the image on the tapestry. Or you might translate it as constantly looking back. So you look at the creation of a conceptual reality and then you sort of reverse engineer it so that you can understand how you created it in the way that you did. Remember I was talking about the four dials or if you're tuning, just tuning into this class, uh, there are four dials which are are related to the, the nature of your contemplation. So you're, you're examining through seeing, diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, and free from desires and discontent of the world. So diligence means the energy that you put into the contemplation. Uh, too much energy in the mind is restless and agitated. Too little uh, energy in the mind is uh, sleepier, slothful fluff and torpor is often the hindrance that's described there. So you want to keep the energy in the middle so you can stay and abide calmly. Clearly knowing means that you know where your attention is and what the sensing experience is that you're perceiving. In the beginning maybe uh, you're not so embodied in the way that you operate in the world. So as you begin to explore the body, teasing apart the different sensations and understanding what they're related to is the challenge. Often uh, this is, uh, for some people anyway, the division between what's an emotional sensation and what's a physical sensation. In sight space, uh, external sight space, if you're a seeing person, most people can pick up on that. Is it so habitually fixated that you're unable to detect the unfixated version of sight space, which is really a very pointillated sort of color dot swirl of energy rather than this solid place? In internal visual thinking, can you detect the different aspects of internal visual thinking with enough clarity to tell them apart? Uh, And often in the beginning of meditation, you can't do that because you don't have the resolution. So this is the development of sensory clarity around what you're actually experiencing. External sound space, most people can detect with their hearing. Internal auditory thinking, most people can detect. But did you notice that there's a subtle vibratory energy in auditory thinking space that's there most of the time, and that the cognition of what the clear talk is going to be precedes the clear talk in the mind, and then the different aspects of the body mindful is a word that in our culture has a lot of different meanings to it particularly as it's been popularized but in uh, meditation it's actually a technical term which means awareness of the present moment um, are you aware when you're in the present moment and are you aware when you're out of the present moment and can you follow that back and forth come back into the present moment and stay there continuously And free from desires and discontent in regard to the world means that you're concentrated enough that you can place your attention where you want to put it and keep it there as long as you want to keep it wherever it is that you want to keep it. One of the main differences between the satipatthana approach and the progress of insight approach is in this uh, description of concentration. In the traditional way of practicing, which is based in the Satipatthana-sutta, the first part of the practice is developing one-pointed concentration, or sati. And in the progress of insight, the the technological difference was uh, called karnaka-samadhi. So samadhi, which is the one-pointedness, or karnaka-samadhi, which is momentary high concentration, meditation practice. In the West, it's largely called noting practice. In order to do high concentration, one-pointed practice, you have to develop a capacity for a, a, a continuous concentration. And for a momentary high concentration, you just need to come into a high concentration state momentarily, and then you can release it until the mind is drawn to another sensing experience and then come back into so typically, the high concentration states in the in the early practice were described by breath practice. Now, some of you who sit on morning meditation, um, if, you're, if you're not aware of morning meditation, it's a live conference call that I do at seven thirty in the most, in the morning Pacific time, and you can get to it through Patreon if you go to the Metagroup Patreon thing, but. Um, <laughs> Whenever we do insight practice, I like to stick a breath-counting practice at the beginning of it, and the reason that I did that was because when I was teaching at Against the Stream years ago, I would offer these insight techniques that were pretty straightforward and simple, but that most of the people who were coming to meditation there at that time did not have even the basic level of concentration necessary to be able to do the techniques in order to have the insights that would come from doing them. And so that when you began to describe, as I did, what kind of insights you should be having from doing the technique, most people were unable to have those experiences because they couldn't hold their concentration longer. In the West, one of the reasons that happens is because the uh, nature of the early instruction in meditation was done on retreat. If you go to retreat and there's long periods of meditation, um, the concentration tends to develop just from practicing. But if you're a householder and your main practice is going to classes like this or the meditation center, uh, and hopefully those will open again, then you're having these uh, meditation periods which are typically of a sor- short duration and not enough to develop that uh, concentration. Um, but in the Satipatthana Sutta, the first period of practice is developing this one pointedness of um, A year ago, March, when I was in um, Myanmar, I was touring around looking at different meditation centers because uh, we were going to do a a trip uh, this December and sit in one of them. We postponed that because um, all flights into Myanmar are still closed because of the pandemic. But um, I met a monk at the uh, Pauk Meditation Center outside of in the South. And uh, he had been a monk for five years and for five years he was doing breath meditation um, in order to develop uh, a fluidity in, in, in jhana. The passage on the breath meditation in the Satipatthana Sutta is, and how, monks, does he in regard to the body abide contemplating the body? Here, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, he sits down Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness in the front of in front of him, mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out, breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long, breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long, breathing in short, he knows, I breathe in short, breathing out short, he knows, I breathe out short, he trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body, he trains thus. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, calming the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formation. Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice, when making a long turn, knows I make a long turn, or when making a short turn, knows I make a short turn. So breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long." Um, depending on which uh, translation or version of the Satipatthana you're reading, some of these will then go into the 16 stages of breath meditation that's outlined in the Sati. And in the early part of the training, um, often the instruction is to uh, stay with breath meditation, uh, go through the 16 stages, and in the process develop uh, Vipassana jhana. I thought that I would explain briefly what Vipassana jhana is, which is a series of high concentration states. Um, We pick an object of meditation and place our attention there so that when we're working with breath meditation, it's the tip of the nose, the opening of the mouth, the back of the throat, the rising of the chest, the rising of the belly or actually wherever the sensations of the breath is the most prominent is a good place to focus because you want something that's easy to track. As you concentrate on the breath and as you practice over a period of time, the breath tends to slow down and get much more shallow. And so the sensations of the breath become less and less distinct and harder and harder to detect. This has the effect when you practice in this way of developing sensory clarity because you need to be uh, sub, uh, sensitive to very subtle sensations in the body. Also, being able to maintain awareness of a single one-pointed place to focus is useful. And smaller objects are easier to focus on than larger objects. So the tip of the nose, which is the smallest one, uh, but also the most subtle in terms of sensation, actually is the easier one if your concentration isn't so good because the spot is so small. I tend to hold an uh, an awareness of the opening of the nose and the opening of the mouth because there's a temperature change from the air coming in and out and often a sense of humidity coming in and out, which makes more of a sensation to detect, so it's easier. You place your attention there and sustain it. So these are the first two aspects of jhana, to place and sustain. So vitaka in Pali means to place your attention on the object of meditation, vikara means that it maintains awareness of that continuously. What happens if you do that is that the body-mind uh, becomes enraptured in the object of meditation and energized. And when you're able to detect this physical energy that arises, which is called piti, typically what you do is then switch your awareness to the energy of the beauty that's arising. Um, one of the reasons to do that is because it's a stronger sensation. It's easier to, to track and, and follow. Uh, some of you who have practiced with me uh, have received the instructions on metajana practice, which is largely the same. It's just a different object rather than focusing on a physical sensation, you're focusing on a view or a mental construction. Once you once you switch to uh, monitoring the piti, sukha arises in the body. Sukha is uh, often translated as bliss. One of the things about the English word bliss is that we generally of connote the intensity of the experience with it, so a strong intensity. But bliss can be quite subtle in in meditation practice, in what they mean by sukha. So a a pleasant, uh, calm uh, feeling overtakes the body. And then what you'll notice is that the mind becomes one pointed So you don't have to effort to maintain awareness of the object of meditation, the mind just uh, stays centered on the object of meditation. And so it's said that when you have all five of these elements present, the taka, vikara, piti, sukha, Ekagata, or placing your attention, sustaining awareness of it, rapture, bliss, and one pointedness, you've entered the first vipassana jhana. The first vipassana jhana is quite unstable, so you pop out a lot and then you recognize that you're out and you come back in, you reset the meditation, you're contemplating the breath, you pick the spot, you adjust the energy so that it's in the middle range, you have sensory clarity of what the object is, you're mindful and you're concentrating. And then what you may notice is that there's a big shift in the level of one pointedness that you no longer have to effort uh, to sustain awareness of the object of meditation. So you're talking then about three different aspects out of the five are present in the second jhana, piti, sukha, and ekagata. Here we again come into a difference between the satipatthana sutta and the uh, progress of insight. Because the progress of insight was written uh, and based on the Vasudhi Maga or from the, the Vasudhi Maga, the commentary on the on jhana in the Vasudi Maga is different than the canonical. When I was uh, in Myanmar with uh U Indika uh one day the nuns gave a description of the jhana uh, Mitta Jhana practice and the positive Jhana practice. And the following day, the, the Sedo gave the same uh, talk, but described the Jhana states quite differently because he was teaching from the Canon and the nuns were teaching from the, the manga. I asked him which uh, version he thought was better for students to learn now. And he said that he thought that the version in the Vasudhimagga was better, but that because he was a monk, he was obligated to teach the canonical version of it. So in the Vasudhimagga, there are four uh, uh, jhana, vipassana jhanas before you get into the esoteric ones, and in the canon there are five. Um, but for short of, uh, for the purpose of brevity, let me talk about the Vasudhimagga, when you move from the first jhana to the second jhana, you, you drop the need to place and sustain your energy. But being in the, in the high concentration state of the second jhana, after a while, the energy of the piti becomes too coarse and the mind drops a further level. And in this place, bliss and one pointedness are the characteristics of it. When I was first uh, sitting with Shinzen, uh, he said that the most pernicious trap in meditation is the third uh, Vipassana jhana um, because it's such a blissful place that if you train yourself to do it really well, you can become highly concentrated and in and, and intense bliss states and you can stay there for as long as you want in that bliss state but you never make progress in terms of insight that would take you to classical liberation. And so you'll notice that if you get stuck there, it's likely that there's some aspect of craving that has arisen that keeps you centered in that uh, that experience. Because in order to go from the third uh, Vipassana jhana into the fourth, you have to let go of the bliss and come into equanimity. So upekka is the Pali word. So the fourth jhana is characterized by uh, akagata and upekka. So one pointed in equanimity. And this was often considered as a great place to then jump into the rest of the explorations of the pasana practice because the mind is very clear uh, and it's very... Uh, Neutral in terms of the experiences that it has. In the Tibetan uh, version of practice, the, this uh, path to uh, uh, initial concentration is called the elephant path. And there's a, a part where they don't recommend that you develop concentration past access concentration. And it, so-called axis concentration because concent- that concentration practice is just concentrated enough that you could enter into jhana or you could enter into vipassana but because the jhana practice is not a direct route to uh, realization that you, you can bypass the development of jhana and go into uh, the vipassana practices so in the version of the satipatthana that I'm Uh, using uh, tonight, there is no instruction uh, in this shortened form for jhana practice, but in some of the other translations uh, there there is. Mm -hmm. Axis concentration means that you can place your attention on an object of meditation and sustain it for as long as you want to. And when I teach it, I tend to think that if you can place and sustain awareness on the breath and count up and down uh, to 10 for a period of 10 minutes and not get caught up into thinking and lose the count. But that's a sufficient level of concentration. We would then go into um, the refrain. The refrain is repeated 17 times throughout the uh, uh, Satipatthana Sutta. And it describes a way in which you should examine things. So, in the beginning, what we're doing is developing the capacity to contemplate or meditate, uh, uh, monitoring these aspects, uh, diligence, uh, seeing clearly uh, mindfulness and uh, concentration, if you will, um, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world, I'm shortening to concentration. And then these overlays of how to investigate. So in this way, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body internally, he abides contemplating the body externally. Or he abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body. He abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body. Or he abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how, uh, in regard to the body, he abides contemplating the body. One of the things to understand about this refrain is that it's talking about, uh, in regards to the body abiding, contemplating the body internally, This is the experience of you and externally is the experience of other people. The world in in, in this way of thinking about it is always defined as other people because we're social beings and we are meant to to be engaged in these complex social groups. And uh, we need to be mindful of our own experience we need to be mindful of other people's experience and then we need to be mindful of the interactivity that uh, our experience of ourselves and other people uh, have uh, that interchange that effect between us um one of my teachers dan brown wrote a book with ken wilbur of um the name of it which is i think perspectives on with the first book that they wrote on that, um, Perspectives on Consciousness, I think it's called. And in it, they have these lists of the development of spiritual maturity. And uh, at the beginning of, of the spiritual practice, uh, awareness that you have a mind state is the, that piece, And that other people have a mind state and that they're different. And then the second aspect is to notice that you have a mind state and your mind state has an effect on other people's mind states and their mind states has an effect on you. So that's a mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside and outside. Can you in real time know what your own experience is? Can you evaluate what you think somebody else's experience is? Can you track how the way that you're reacting to the present moment is affecting the person that you are with, and can you track how the way that the person is reacting to what's happening is affecting you in real time? This is this contemplation. Is that making sense? This is extremely useful to pay attention to if you don't already have that training. He abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body or he or he contemplates the nature of passing away in the body, or he abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away. Um, Often in the description of this, uh, there is the habit of people to simply watch the arising of things. So the attention is drawn each time a new sensing experience happens, and in this process of just noticing the arising, it's possible to create the belief that all experience is just continuous and ongoing and permanent. That's where that belief comes in. So that the, what we begin to do is notice that it arises, there's a, a, a midpoint and then it passes away and that all sensing experiences, both macro and micro, have that quality to them. So in the beginning, we contemplate the arisings and then we contemplate the passing away and then we notice the arising and passing away. We notice that as something passes away, that opens the space for something else to arise. And our attention is not complete and universal, but rather selective. We don't, uh, each of us, do not have the same experience of what's happening because each of us is conditioned differently and we selectively focus on the things that we consider to be high value. If your list of high value targets is not exactly the same as somebody else's list of high value targets, you will pick out of the, the all of the activity around you, the things that have interest and meaning to you, and then you'll project them out there, creating this perception of a solid world, which is entirely based on things that. Uh, are important and have meaning for you. And when you're with someone else, they're also doing that. And they're creating their own version of what's happening out of what they've selected. And so you cannot say um, with any kind of veracity, this is what's happening. But you can say, "What this is what what's happening means to me um, with complete integrity because that's actually all well, you can know. These are the things that uh, insight practice is attempting to communicate. Um, as we move down the list in terms of developing spiritual maturity, you have a mind state, other people have a mind state. The way that you are and how you react has an effect on their mindset and how their mindset is affected has an effect on you. You can track that in real time. Everything arises and passes. Nothing lasts. Um, we talk about this in the the Four Noble Truths, which is another one of these lists. And um, in the, the uh, Four Foundations of um, Mindfulness, which is uh, one way that you could characterize the Satipatthana Sutta, The first exploration is uh, the body. The second exploration is a feeling tone. The third exploration is mind. And the fourth one is the dharma or the teachings. One aspect of this is the Four Noble Truths, uh, the truth of the temporary nature of things. Um, Sometimes it's translated as uh, life is suffering, I don't tend to, to like that translation because it's it's it, it inaccurate. Um, uh, life is unsatisfactory, uh, I think, was a, was the way that Shinzen used to talk about it. Um, so that even if you get everything under control, and even if you're very skillful, it remains unsatisfactory. Um, but the one that I really like is the way that Dan Brown translates it, which is. Um, you're reactive and you react whenever you uh, contact something uh, that you can detect with your sensing experiences. And no matter how enlightened you become, because we live in a human body which has sensing experiences, you remain reactive. And then we come into the second one, which is that uh, wanting things to be different than they are, not wanting things to be the way that they are, Not being able to pay attention to it. The opposite of equanimity uh, is the cause of suffering, the inability to actually be with the conditions of the present moment the way that they are. That need for them to be different, that need to create some different uh, alternative reality to what's actually happening is the the source of suffering, and that there's a way out of that uh, suffering, which is the So these aspects of exploration, their awareness is again this idea that you need to know enough of what's going on so that you you have a sense of what's happening, but you don't need to know everything. Uh, Also uh, pointing out that you can't know every little thing. Um, I like to turn to the the, uh, neuroscientists for this as a a way of explaining it. Um, When I was um, in Myanmar, the sado was giving a Dharma talk about how one of his students was able to fly on the energy of two And he was talking about it in the most concrete, literal terms. And so I'm being, you know, sort of a died in the smart-ass, raised my hand to ask a question about it. And his response was, you have one of those sharp Western minds, so you can't see what's really going on, which I thought was hilarious and a a really good answer. Um, Dan, on the other hand, in in a similar uh, smart ass uh, query um, said uh, in the West we like things to be described scientifically because that's miraculous for us whereas if we describe something metaphysically we're immediately uh, doubting uh, the same uh, level of magic that we would be instantly accepting if it were described in scientific terms and so Here's the science. You don't need to know everything that's happening, and you can't anyway. Uh, We have uh, the capacity to sense, according to this one group of neuroscientists in France, about 11 million discrete bits of information per second. But consciousness is only 16 bits, one sixth. So the best you can do in a moment of complete mindfulness is understand... 16 bits out of 11 million, right? Not that much. Do you need to know that the body-mind is adjusting the amount of adrenaline in the blood based on your activity? Do you need to monitor that? Or can just let that happen, right? So you don't need to know everything. You just need to know the 16 bits, which is the bare awareness description. So we're going to do some meditation um, and we're going to uh, do a little bit of breath counting and then we're going to do a little bit of see here and feel to begin to divide and create that perception uh, that develop that sensory clarity in the body. Um, One of the things that's important, I think, uh, to keep your practice energized is that you're curious about what's happening and that you're able to regularly satisfy that that taste of curiosity that you have so that you'll continue to practice. Um, from the attachment side, the exploration piece is um, an important conversation and your conditioning affects your capacity to explore and so because meditation is a way of exploring, you may notice uh, uh, a reaction to the different ways in which you're meant to explore in meditation. And that's a, a good dialogue to have um, with a meditation teacher even here in the group um, in the way that you experience um, uh, the lack of equanimity or the equanimity with exploring because that may be an indication of what your attachment conditioning is and also give you an indication of how to address it. Is that all making sense? Questions about that before we begin it? Do you have any? All right, so let's do some practice. So, okay, so you're just there letting your attention be drawn to wherever it's drawn and then just noting it. Um, There's an aspect of this uh, in terms of developing mentalization, which is something that I like to talk about, uh, is the spontaneity of just allowing one sensing experience to arise after another and then being able to continuously monitor it. So when you get caught up in thinking you get swept up into the spontaneous side and lose the monitoring but sometimes you can be monitoring so intensely that it shuts down the experience so you might notice in auditory thinking space that it suddenly goes quiet um, or visual thinking suddenly goes dark and that may be that you are as you're practicing, you're shifting too heavily onto the monitoring side and inhibiting the flow of that. On the other hand, it's kind of enjoyable that it's you're in a, in a rest state there. So it's not something that is necessarily a problem and you would not want to, for instance, attempt to force something to arise. You just really want to move into that place of equanimity. So that which which is the last part of that refrain Mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, the reactivity between the two, arising and passing, arising and passing, bare awareness and equanimity. And then monitoring, whether uh, you're too far into the control or monitoring side, so that's actually inhibiting and moving a little bit more toward the spontaneous side, but not so much that you get swept away into thinking and lose the monitoring side. That's the beginning of... uh, of the development of the meditative state, being able to monitor those things. Good. Something else? Or that was good. Good answer. Good enough answer, i like to say. So uh, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate the opportunity to teach. Um, What's coming up uh, in July is uh, a a, a virtual five-day retreat uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. It's going to be a metta vipassana retreat, and we will uh, do some attachment stuff on it. It start. Uh, it's, I think it's July seventeenth. If that's a Friday, there uh, we're we're only having twenty spots in the retreat because I want to be able to do interviews with people, and so I think we have uh, twelve people registered for it now. So that if you're interested in doing that, I would uh, um, go ahead and sign up. For it, um, I'm going to be doing the. I'm doing a series of six classes on the the progress of insight map, which I was talking about a little bit tonight. And that's so the third Saturday of the month, which is also during the retreat. I'll be t- talking about that, um, and then. Um, I have the um, Tuesday beginner class on this class. Uh, and then on uh, every morning, Monday through Friday, I have a, a live guided meditation that if you wanted to join that, uh, that's um, through the Patreon site, so you can find that. I think there's a link for it on the site. One of the things about having a regular daily practice is that it does support the development of practice over time. and. Uh, you can come live in the morning for that, but also it's recorded, and so you can pick it up at any time uh, during the day on any device that has access to the internet, and so that you can support your practice that way. Um, a lot of people develop a practice where they're able to sit independently of guidance, but in the beginning, often having the guidance is useful. And if you come live in the morning and you have a, a question about your practice, I can answer them at that time, because there's always a QA and a after the meditation in the morning. I think that's about it. We are going to be doing some level one classes, uh, um, I think starting in October, but that's a ways off. Um, I do offer the teaching on a dana basis. Dana is the poly word for generosity. Um, I offer the teachings freely and anybody can attend them, um, but we do hope that people will support us through donation that supports me uh, so that I can make my way in the world, but also supports uh, Meta group so that we can continue the work that we're doing. If you wanted to make a donation, you could do that by going to the same page where the link for the this uh, talk was, and uh, you'll see a link for donation. Uh, Everybody is welcome to come to the class, and I don't actually uh, even track who makes a donation, so it's that's not actually something that. I'm aware of, I just know that uh, it's helpful for us um, uh, to keep going, to have that happen. And it's also useful to you in terms of your own practice of generosity to be able to to support the things that have meaning to you. Thank you for coming and uh, we will see you next time. Bye. It's not up yet. Uh, We'll put it up about two months ahead, so if it comes out in October. Then uh, probably uh, beginning of next month. Already, I know.